Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today, for reading Matthew from a Jewish perspective. And thank you to our co-hosts for today's event, Beth L. in Phoenix. I would love to pass it over to them to introduce today's guest speakers. Shalom, everyone. I'm Rabbi Nitzan Stein-Kokin, the rabbi at Beth L. And we are so excited to have you both here learning about how to read Matthew or look in this context that we're constantly exploring, at least here at Bethel, of the world of our rabbis uh, and uh, interfaith with Christianity uh, in, in, in maybe ancient times and modern times as well. Um, very much welcome. I don't want to take more time. Welcome to Professor Amy Levine, who is the Rabbi Stanley... Kessler, Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace, University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies Emerita, and Mary Jane Worthen, Professor of Jewish Studies Emerita, Professor of New Testament Studies Emerita at Vanderbilt University. Wow, what, what amazing... <laughs> Uh, biography comes out there in your titles. And welcome also to Professor Mike Sweep-Rettler, um, Bernice and Morton Lerner, Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Duke University, and the Dora Golding Professor of Biblical Literature Emeritus at Brandeis University. And together, you have edited a book that is definitely in my bookshelf, um, the Jewish Annotated New Testament. And you have written the Bible with and without Jesus, how Jews and Christians read the same book differently. And so I'm just going to turn it over to you because we have so much to learn from you. Welcome. We're excited to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here with all of you. And I would really like to wish a Mazal Tov to the Valley Family Draft on the fact that they were recently awarded the Elie Wiesel Foundation Award for Social Action Fellowships. One of the really wonderful things about the Valley Bit Midrash is the way in which they combine learning and social action. This is something that is deeply meaningful to both A.J. Levine and to me. And I really hope that this particular talk will be able to contribute in various ways to that particular goal. And Shmuley, I'm so sorry that your mother did not have the opportunity to live to see you get, get this another wonderful accolade. Amy Jill Levine and I have decided when, to, when discussing the New Testament in this particular context to focus on the book of Matthew. Now, in a sense, this does make, uh, this is a logical choice, because the book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And AJ, I don't know if we've ever talked about it. I know that we're going to go through the entire New Testament doing this. But Matthew... Okay, and while we wait for Mark to come back on just a few points about Matthew, as long as we're here, I should note that I wrote my dissertation on Matthew, and I wrote my dissertation when Noah was still back on the ark. Um, so I have been dealing with this text for more years than I care to count. 
Um, it is a remarkably Jewish text, and it is a remarkably anti-Jewish text. Uh, so reading the Gospel of Matthew on the one hand gives us insight into Second Temple Jewish history, like early first century Jewish history. And on the other hand, it's one of the sources that led to horrific treatment of Jews by Christians um, over the centuries. So the text can be interpreted philo-Judaically or anti-Judaically, depending upon how we want to read it. Matthew is a wonderful place to start, not only because it is my favorite gospel, but also because in many ways, it is the most Jewish of the gospels, even as we'll see at the very end, in some ways, it is the most uh, anti-Jewish of the gospels. So to, con to continue, we're going to look at this issue today from five different topics or five different perspectives. We're going to look at continuity between the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, or Old Testament, and the book of Matthew with respect to genealogies. We're going to look at something that characterizes Matthew much more than the Hebrew Bible, even though it's found there to some extent, namely fulfillment citations. We'll look at what is sometimes called typology, namely the way in which the depiction of Jesus in particular parallels depictions of earlier figures in the Tanakh or Hebrew Bible, especially the figure of Moses. Then we're going to move a little bit to after the period of the New Testament to the rabbinic period, where we're going to see how both the New Testament and rabbinic texts build a fence around the Torah. They extend Torah legislation. And the last thing that we're going to talk about are the way in which both um, early Jewish and New Testament, perhaps early Christian, early pre-Christian, early Christ-believing communities uh, had a sense that maybe there were too many commandments in the Hebrew Bible, and therefore it is important to talk about them in general terms, to create an abstract for them. In other words, to create what we call halachic epitomies. AJ? So we'll start with the genealogy, a very good place to start. Uh, the the entire New Testament, including the Gospel of Matthew, was written in Greek, which already gives us a problem if we want to talk about the relationship between Matthew and the Hebrew Bible, because, in fact, Matthew was not citing any Hebrew anything. When Matthew winds up giving citations from the earlier scriptures, Matthew is actually citing from the Greek translation. The very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, which is also the very beginning of the New Testament, anchors Jesus and so the Christian tradition into the earlier Jewish tradition on the basis of scripture. Uh, it begins a book, the Greek term for book is biblos, like bibliography or bibliotech, um, of the generation or birth, Genesius, um, of Jesus. And here we have a question of how we want to translate the Greek. The Greek word here is Christos, and you know that from words like Christianity. But Christos is actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Mashiach, which means Messiah. So a book of the generation or the genealogy of Jesus the Christos, and then son of David, son of Abraham. And what Matthew will do through the rest of the gospel, much more so than the other three gospels in the New Testament, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John, is really push on Jesus as son of David, that royal Messiah, and push again on Jesus as son of Abraham, with Abraham not only being the foundational figure, but also Abraham being a Gentile 
who becomes a worshiper of the one God. And Matthew was very interested in bringing Gentiles into this early um, Jesus-following movement. So Abraham becomes not only the first Jew for Matthew, but also the first Gentile convert. In the genealogy, surprising, although not completely unique, because there are women in genealogies in the anterior scriptures, Matthew has references to four women in the genealogies, and they're not the women that I would have expected. I would have expected Sarah and Rebecca and Leah, the mother of Judah, but instead we start with Tamar. Uh, Tamar, if you recall from Genesis chapter 38, winds up uh, allowing her father-in-law to think she's a prostitute, um, having sex with him, uh, conceiving twins. It's a little on the scandalous side. Uh, Rahab from the book of Joshua, chapters two and six, is the prostitute from Jericho. Ruth, who we remember from, whither thou goest, I will go, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Except in chapter three of the book of Ruth, Naomi, the mother-in-law, says to Ruth, you know, put on some perfume, uh, put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, and mark where this fellow Boaz is lying down. She's not telling Ruth to go to the library. The scene is a seduction. And finally, we have the wife of Uriah, who was Bathsheba. So we have four women who, who might be described as engaged with um, obstetrical irregularities, to make it a polite sense. And these four women then lead to the story of the birth of Jesus, where it turns out that there's a fellow named Joseph who was engaged to a woman named Mary. And before the marriage is, is completed, Mary turns up pregnant. So it looks like another obstetrical irregularity. And we'll get to that. And then we have strong continuity, in fact, with the Hebrew Bible, because genealogies are central in the Hebrew Bible, not only in the book of Genesis, but also in the later books. Mark? Yeah, I would just say in terms of the later books, if you ever find yourself traveling in a hotel and you are not able to sleep, go to one of the latest books of the Hebrew Bible, namely, namely the book of Chronicles, uh, found in different places in different Bibles, I guess in the Gideon Bible. It would be somewhere a little before the middle and try to make it through the first 10 chapters. Those are all genealogies. And by the way, as AJ mentioned, genealogies in which women uh, hardly are present. And certainly there are no women with, I believe what you called for the first time I've heard of, obstetrical problems in those particular chapters. And you can see that especially in late biblical texts, whether it's Chronicles, whether it's Ezra Nehemiah, whether it's certain part, other parts of the Bible that scholars consider to be late, genealogies, all of these begats, are incredibly important. And this really does form a very significant background for the New Testament, because these latest books of the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh are only about three or four centuries earlier than the New Testament. So this is a very, very important point of continuity. Um, in terms of the echoes of Genesis, um, and here names are important because people remember names. And back then, for the most part, people didn't repeat names. Good thing. So that in Matthew's genealogy, which starts with son of Abraham, son of David, and then this son of God idea, um, we have the reference to Jacob, the father of Joseph. And as soon as we get to Jacob, the father of Joseph, anybody who knows Genesis knows the plot line, right? So um, you have a Joseph whose father's name is Jacob. I bet that Joseph is going to dream dreams and go to Egypt. And that's exactly what happens. 
This also, by the way, turns out to be the genealogy of Joseph, who is not Jesus, quote unquote, natural father. Joseph is not Jesus' father. Um, the Holy Spirit sort of is. And that's too much technical stuff for which we have time this afternoon. Um, so Joseph, the son of David, correct genealogy, um, will dream dreams and will bring his family to Egypt. One other point about translation, by the way. Mark, can you just go back one sec? In most New Testaments, um, when you have Matthew's genealogy or in, in any reference to people in, in the Jewish tradition, um, we have Jacob, the father of Joseph. The word for Jacob in Greek is Yaakov, which sounds very much like the Hebrew Yaakov. But there's a disciple of Jesus who's, who usually comes into history named James. James's name in Greek is actually Yaakov, it's Jacob. But when uh, New Testament uh, translators, particularly with the King James version of the Bible going back over 400 years, um, started translating these so-called Christian figures, suddenly um, all these Jacobs in the New Testament story become Jameses, as if they all suddenly became Episcopalians. The name is really Jacob. Um, the Davidic code here, and Matthew gives us a sense of this, um, all the generations, and the generation term generation here is uh, uh, Genea, we might think of Dorot, the door of a door, uh, from Abraham to David, 14 generations, that's correct, and if you actually get bored, you can count them, and from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to the Christos. Now, we've got a couple of problems and a couple of really interesting insights here. First of all, um, there's a Jewish tradition known as gematria, where every single letter of the alphabet has a numerical equivalent. So Aleph is one and Bet is two. You can do the same thing in Greek because the Greek alphabet looks very much like the Hebrew alphabet. Um, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Alpha, Beta, Gamma. Um, so since every letter has a numerical equivalent, if you take the, the three letters in the name of David, um, Dalit Vav Dalit, what you wind up is DVD 646 equals 14. So all these references to 14 generations are signaling this is a Davidic uh, royal line. This is a Davidic royal line. But if you actually count up that third set of 14, there were only 13 names when you get to Jesus. If Matthew was hint, as if Matthew was hinting, perhaps that 14th generation, that 14th generation is the generation of the church. This only works, by the way, if you know Hebrew. Matthew is written in Greek. So it is likely that whoever was presenting the gospel of Matthew to whatever community would have explained to these uh, Greek listeners, by the way, there is encoded here in this genealogy something about David that you know, but other Greek speakers might not. Since AJ used the term gematria, let me just talk about that and talk about that, that device for a moment. Uh, gematria is either related to the Greek word geometry or is related to gamma is tria, namely the third Greek, third letter of the Greek alphabet, gamma, has the value of three. This device is hardly, some people would say, not at all found in the Hebrew Bible itself but it certainly becomes a very prominent device in rabbinic literature. I'll remind you that rabbinic literature is later than the New Testament. And this is one of the many cases where the New Testament forms a very, very important link in between the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew Bible and later rabbinic tradition. And of course, the New Testament is a Jewish book by and large, if not totally, written by Jews, largely written for Jews. I'll talk about that in a second. 
And as such, uh, this is a wonderful case of where we see a rabbinic device, a very significant rabbinic device, well attested already in the New Testament. Right. And to the note that just came in in chat, absolutely. Uh, D is for uh, the Vav is six and D is four. Um, so we had the numbers reversed. That's because we have PhDs in Bible and not in mathematics. So thank you for <laughs> Thank you for that correction. I should have seen that as well. On to the second point of fulfillment citations, which is related to a very important fact, which is, and I, I use the word fact very, very carefully in my scholarship, that for the earliest Christ believers, and that probably is a better term than Christians, because these are Jews who did not think that they were creating a new religion when the parting of the ways occurred is something that is worthy of a whole other lecture or set of lectures. But these early Christ-believing Jews had as their scriptures, more or less what we would call the Tanakh, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And as such, uh, they very much saw Jesus in many places in that book. To the extent that there are about 225 marked citations to the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament, and many, many, many other allusions, you know, marked citations you could be sure about, allusions people can debate what is or is not an allusion. A very special type of marked citation is typical of the book of Matthew, which has 10 of them, where you have a quote which is introduced with the words that say either this or something similar, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. In other words, which these, these citations assume that when that the Hebrew Bible was talking about events that were far in the future and were being fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And to some people who are listening here, it might seem very strange that any Jewish group would be able to understand prophetic literature as referring to events that were going to transpire far in the future. I'm happy to talk about this later in the questions and answers, but the Dead Sea Scrolls from the same period as the New Testament very much have the same conception where one of them, a commentary on the book of Habakkuk says, essentially that Habakkuk did not really understand what he was speaking, and his words were waiting to become fulfilled centuries later. The earliest of these fulfillment citations is found toward the end of the first chapter of Matthew, where there is a citation of Isaiah chapter 714 in relation to the birth of Jesus. Here, the abbreviation LXX stands for 70. I hope we got our Roman numerals right which reflects that this is the translation of the 70, namely the Septuagint, the technical name for the early Jewish Greek translation of the Bible. And although it is true that in the Hebrew version, the word that is translated here in the English as virgin is the word alma, which simply means a woman of marriageable age. In the Greeks translated, in the Greek translation is paratinos, which is likely to be translated as a virgin. That is certainly how the, how, certainly how the New Testament is understanding the Septuagint. And here, again, what is crucial is 
This is the first of 10 such references where a section of the Hebrew Bible is understood to be prophetic. And these references from various places in the Hebrew Bible are brought together in a central way and understood to be fulfilled in reference to Jesus. I would just say as a sidebar, we have an image, A.J. Levine and I have an entire chapter on this verse and the use of this verse in the New Testament in our book, The Bible with and Without Jesus. So on to more fulfillment citations. So the problem with fulfillment citations is they presume that you actually know what's in the interior text. Um, there was a movie that came out a number of years ago called Pulp Fiction, which kept citing a verse from Ezekiel, except it wasn't in Ezekiel. It was actually from a, a Japanese film. Um, so here's our problem. Uh, yet another fulfillment citation. This is, the, this is toward the end of Matthew chapter two, the end of Matthew chapter two. Uh, Jesus has returned from Egypt. He makes his home in a place called Nazareth. We know nothing about Nazareth in the first century. It's probably some tiny little town in the Galilee. Um, and then Matthew says, this would, it should be fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. There is no such quote. People have suggested it might have something to do with Netzer that means branch or a Nazarite, which Jesus, among other things, wasn't. Because among, among other things, Nazarites aren't supposed to drink alcohol. And Jesus was good at doing things like turning water into wine. Um, so what we have here is a non-citation, and biblical scholars, Matthean experts, still haven't quite figured out what's going on here. Either Matthew is teasing the reader, or Matthew was suggesting a number of different passages that could be brought forward, or Matthew was saying Jesus is such a fulfillment of this entire scripture that he even fulfills material that's not there. So it's very helpful if you are looking back at these fulfillment citations to figure out where exactly they are, and also to look at what comes before and what comes after to see if the text is there, and if it is, if it's being taken out of context, or whether we should understand that entire fulfillment citation in light of the broader context, and we'll give you examples of both. This fulfillment citation talks about Jesus as God's servants, and cites a section, paraphrasing, Isaiah chapter 42, which is from a collection from Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 of an anonymous exilic prophet that became appended to the book of Isaiah. And one of the things that characterizes Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 is there are a number of descriptions there of a servant. Who this servant is, is not at all clear from the book, especially who he is in the larger section about the servant from the end of Isaiah chapter 52 through Isaiah chapter 53 is not clear enough. And scholars have really uh, torn down entire forests debating this particular issue. Was the servant someone in the past? Is the servant someone in the present? Is the servant someone in the future? That is one access to think about servanthood. Another access to think about servanthood is whether the servant is really an individual or whether the servant represents a group such as Israel, what is sometimes called the corporate interpretation of, a of the servant. We are not discussing this right now. All we would like to point out here is that the early Christ-believing community thought that Jesus was this particular servant. And the final thing that I would point out is, there's really something quite remarkable in the way in which 
This early Christ community interprets these various sections. Uh, some people are not going to believe me, but you're welcome to look back at your Bibles to see that in this particular case, I am telling the truth. There is nothing in the Hebrew Bible itself to suggest that the servant is a, mess, is a messianic figure. The earliest interpretation known to me of the servant as a messianic figure is found in these texts, which are embedded in the New Testament from the late first century of the common era. A final fulfillment citation that I want to discuss is found toward the end of the book of Matthew. And I guess I really need to read a couple of verses that lead up to it, beginning of Matthew chapter 21. When they, Jesus and his followers, had come near Jerusalem and had reached uh, Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If everyone says anything to you, and I was like, why are you stealing these? Just say this, the Lord needs them. And he will send them immediately. Now, this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this continues, you could see the rest of it on the slide. I'd like to make several points about this. One of them, as you can see from the end of the slide, I'll use the technical term mashup. This is the mashup of two Hebrew Bible verses, one from Isaiah, one from Zechariah. And actually, in one of the cases where you have a fulfillment citation in the Hebrew Bible, this is to fulfill such and such. There are only two cases in the Hebrew Bible. One of them is at the end of the book of Chronicles. That text also is a mashup there of the book of Leviticus and the book of Jeremiah. So bringing together various texts and saying it is to fulfill what is said in the Bible is already found in the Hebrew Bible itself, which really represents the notion that the Hebrew Bible Old Testament Tanakh is really understood as a type of unity. The other thing that is worth noting about this verse is connected to the phenomenon of biblical poetry, which is typified by something which is very different than English poetry, namely a feature that has been named for the last few centuries, parallelism, where it is very frequent to hear, whether it's in prophecy or in Psalms, where a single verse will say the same thing twice. Or as some scholars have said, it will say A and what is more so B, but where the what is more so B is a heightened repetition of what is said in A. So for example, Isaiah chapter one, verse three, yada shor konehu, an ox knows its master, v'chamor evus alav, and a donkey, the feeding trough of its owner. These are not two separate thoughts, that but they are parallel thoughts, which represent the same idea. At some point, or at some points with an S at the end, the fact that parallelism worked this way and was saying the same thing, and I'm overemphasizing those words, the same thing twice was forgotten. 
And this is a remarkable case of the forgetting of, of parallelism, because in the original verse from Zechariah, it is not two different animals that are being discussed. This is simply a case of parallelism where the same thing is said once and then restated in slightly different words. But here, this is being understood not in the sense of parallelism, but you have a distinct donkey and cult, and cult, excuse me. So here you have a case of parallelism being forgotten or not understood well already. We're now going to move on to our third main point, namely cases of typology. AJ. So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, particularly the first seven chapters, um, along with the reference to Joseph, son of Jacob, and a trip to Egypt to escape a mass slaughter, which is what we're about to see, um, we also have a paralleling of Jesus and Moses. So <clears throat> you know from the story at the book of Exodus that when Moses is born, uh, Pharaoh had given an order that male babies, uh, Hebrew babies, be thrown into the Nile, and Moses' mother uh, rescues Moses. So we have this rescued baby, a connection with Egypt. And it turns out that Jesus is yet another rescued baby with a connection to Egypt. So there are these figures called the Magi. Um, you might have heard like the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Um, they, they're not kings, and there may not have been three. The Greek just calls them Magi. The singular would be Magus. They're Persian astrologers. Um, or today, a Magus is technically a Zoroastrian priest. So Magi, Zoroastrian priest. They're Gentiles. They see the star up in the sky. So if you've seen the Christmas cards with the star of Bethlehem, it's not a real star. Real stars are, are giant balls of hydrogen gas. Uh, and we're told the star actually stopped over the house where Mary and Joseph and the baby are. You know, if a, if a, if a giant ball of hydrogen gas stops over your house, the entire earth is now incinerated. So the star of Bethlehem is not a star. It's, it's a sentient being because a number of people, among them Jews at the time, thought that stars were like angels or uh, the righteous dead who shine like the stars of heaven. You get hints of that in the book of Daniel. So it's, it's kind of like a real person up there like a ball of light that you could travel, functioning like a GPS. Anyway, so the Magi get to Jerusalem, they go to Herod, they say, we've seen the star, it must be a sign that there's a king of the Jews, can you tell us where he is? Herod, who thinks he's the king of the Jews, he's also a paranoid megalomaniac, says, listen, it, let me check, he looks at the books, it turns out that there's a prediction in the prophet Micah, uh, about the son of David being born in Bethlehem, the city of David. That's more of that son of David concerns. So the king says to the Magi, go to Bethlehem, find the child, and then come back and tell me where he is so I can go worship him too. The Magi get warned in a dream because Matthew is very big in the first couple of chapters about dream revelations, not to go back to Herod because Herod wants to kill the baby. Um, so the Magi wander out of the text. When Herod realizes he's been tricked, and we don't know how many months or even years after this, he arranges for the death of all the children in and around Bethlehem for two years or younger, according to the time that the Magi had first visited. And now we have this Moses parallel. Babies are being slaughtered, but Jesus' father or stepfather Joseph being warned in a dream is told, leave, take the child and his mother to Egypt. And we have here yet another fulfillment citation. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, all the parents in Bethlehem and surrounding regions are in mourning because of the slaughter of their children. For Matthew, that's Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah wailing in loud lamentation. 
weep, Rachel weeping for her children, because Jeremiah is talking about the Babylonian exile um, and the Judean citizens force march from Jerusalem to Babylon, passing by Rachel's tomb on the way. And Jeremiah imagines Rachel weeping for her children. But if you actually look at this particular, if you look at this statement in Jeremiah 31 in context, the very next verse is God saying to Rachel, stop your weeping. Your children will come home for your, from their exile. There will be a reward for your fidelity. So this is one of those cases where if you actually look at the context of the fulfillment citation, you get an added meaning. This also tells us one more point, by the way, why Jews and Christians sometimes understand the land of Israel differently. When Jews read Jeremiah 31, we hear return to the, the homeland from exile. Matthew cuts the verse off with Rachel weeping. So the sense of the return to the homeland goes missing. And then we have the new Moses again. So what happens? When Herod decides to kill the children, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. This is Joseph dreaming dreams like that original Joseph, saying, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. So just as Moses' family was brought down to Egypt by that original Joseph, and Moses leaves Egypt and then goes back to Egypt, so Egypt becomes a place here, first of refuge, and then later of, of less refuge, and then refuge again. So by telling the story of the endangered baby Jesus, Matthew was presenting the endangered baby Jesus as a new Moses. And the new Moses model continues so that when Jesus returns, when the family comes back to Galilee uh, from being in Egypt, the next chapter is the baptism that's crossing through water. Then there's a temptation in the wilderness of 40 days. And then in chapters five through seven of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes up on a mountain and gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And that's to suggest Mount Sinai. So you have the original Torah given by Moses, and then the Sermon on the Mount becomes Jesus' gloss on that original Torah. Here's just one more fulfillment citation, as if there weren't enough in the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. When Joseph returns home, um, we have another fulfillment citation. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Hosea is talking about the ancient Israelites escaping from slavery at the Exodus. Matthew has simply repurposed this. So not only here is Jesus a new Moses leaving slavery, Jesus is actually a new Israel leading, leaving slavery, a new Israel who will face temptation in the wilderness, and a new Israel who will hear, in effect, a new Torah. More mosaic allusions. What we have here in chapter three of the Gospel of Matthew um, is a bot called bot daughter call voice. Daughter of the voice is a technical term for when the heavens open up and you can hear the voice of God. I still kind of think Charlton Heston, and I'm pretty sure that's the wrong accent with the wrong figure, but you know what I mean. So Jesus goes under the water for baptism, so it's a dunk. Um, it's not a mikvah. Mikvah is done for reasons of ritual purity, and it's something repeated. Baptism here with John the baptizer is a one-off, um, and it's designed for repentance of sins. When he comes up from the water, the heavens open up, and he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So if you've seen images or heard stories about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this dove imaging the Spirit is that third part of the Trinity. And then a bot call, a voice from heaven, comes down and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And this is God's, in effect, sanctioning Jesus before all of the people. Before this, it was all quite personal. But now it's out in public 
by the Jordan River, and the heavens have opened up saying, this is the one you need to listen to. We are all children of God, but this is a very special son. Is there an allusion here to Isaac, who was almost sacrificed? Quite possibly. Let me stick with the bath call for a minute, because this is another very important case of continuity between the New Testament and rabbinic texts, because indeed the term bat call is not a biblical term, but is a rabbinic term for this type of disembodied voice. And here you see that this is not a new notion in rabbinic texts, but already must have been a common notion among Jews of the first century of the common era. And the same notion that there are certain things in rabbinic and later literature that we only understand well in their historical context through the New Testament is also clear in the following slide, which uh, cites Matthew, the beginning of Matthew chapter four, which first of all talks about Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, which is another case of typology to go back there because Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in Exodus chapter 34. Elijah similarly fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in 1 Kings chapter 19. So again, Jesus is being depicted as a new Moses and as a new Elijah. But what's also significant in these two verses is if you look at the last word of the first verse, where it talks about tempted by the devil, the Greek there is diabolos, as in diabolical. This would reflect the Hebrew word satan, which eventually enters into English as Satan. The word satan appears in the Hebrew Bible. Very often it appears with a definite article where it can refer to a human adversary, to a particular individual, sometimes a king. It sometimes is in the first two chapters of the book of Job, refers to a heavenly figure who is an adversary. I would just point out that for reasons of Hebrew grammar, the word Satan is not appropriate there because in biblical Hebrew grammar, personal names cannot have the element the, the Hebrew element ha in front of it. But again, in one of the latest books of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Chronicles, and only there do you have the term Satan, meaning Satan or devil. So here you see a late idea in the Hebrew Bible being picked up in the New Testament, which is really reflective of the fact that it was becoming more important in first century Judaism. By the time we reach uh, rabbinic texts and later Jewish tradition and early Christian tradition, Satan would become much more important. And then finally, we come to the Sermon on the Mount, where almost at the beginning, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are what are called the Beatitudes, like blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, because they'll inherit the earth. Those should sound vaguely familiar. And they're, they're old. They're, um, uh, they're formulas that you can also find in the scriptures of Israel. So there's nothing new about the formula here. Um, Jesus says, don't think I have come to abolish Torah or Nevi'im. Um, why does he say that? Well, Matthew probably put that verse in because some people thought uh, that that's what this new movement was about. Why? Because the Gentiles who were joining this movement, who were never under Torah to begin with, weren't keeping kashrut, weren't practicing circumcision, probably were not honoring the Sabbath. So Matthew wants to make it really clear that although these Gentiles in the movement are not doing this, Jesus did not come at all 
to do away with Torah. And the Jewish followers of Jesus, we think Paul of Tarsus or Saint Peter or any of the Marys, Mary the mother, Mary Magdalene, and so on, they're all still halakhically Jewish. And then he makes very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, until heaven and earth pass away, um, the King James Version is not one jot or tittle. So that's where jot and tittle comes from. Not one iota, which is what the Greek says, not one stroke of a letter. Think dot of an I or cross of a T will pass away until everything is accomplished. So the Gospel of Matthew, much more so than the other three canonical Gospels, not only has fulfillment citations and a genealogy to ground Jesus in the scriptures of Israel, but also grounds Jesus in the halakhic tradition. Uh, the Torah is paramount but it's Torah as Jesus interprets it, as opposed to Torah as the Dead Sea Scrolls interpret it, or Torah as the Pharisees interpreted it, or Torah as the later rabbis will interpret it. In no case, by the way, does Jesus do away with the law. What he does instead is he engages in extensions. There's a section in the Sermon on the Mount that are normally called the antitheses, but they're not antitheses. And here's a matter of translation. He's like, you have heard it said something, 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 and I've given it to you here. And then most English translations of Matthew read, but I say to you, that would be an antithesis. An antithesis would be, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, lock and load and take out as many as you can. That's an antithesis. What Jesus is actually doing is extending the Torah or doing what rabbinic literature, I'm here in the Mishnah Perkei Avot 1.1, says you build a fence about the law. What does that mean? You have one law, you make another law to make sure you don't violate the first one. So the law is you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Well, you shall not murder is part of the 10 words, the Decalogue. And then Jesus builds this fence by saying, you can't be angry with a brother. You can't say you fool, which is what raka means, um, or stupid person, um, or fool. The Greek is moron, which is where we get the word moron. Um, in other words, you can't be angry and you can't insult anybody. And if you do, that's tantamount to murder. Why? Because if you're not angry and if you refrain from insult, then murder is less likely to happen. Jesus here is anticipating the rabbinic statement about building a fence about the law by having one law and then making other laws to make sure you do not violate the first one. And this continues throughout the so-called antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount. And that brings us to the final issue that we'd like to raise, namely epitomizing, creating a type of abstract of a biblical law, where Jesus says in Matthew 7, 12, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets, something well known to all of you, often called the golden rule, found in various formulations in a large number of traditions throughout the world. Now, it might seem surprising that the Bible can be epitomized in some ways, and it might seem that this is something which is really non-Jewish or anti-Jewish. And we're going to briefly show you that that really is not the case. And this is clear from the following text, which is from the Babylonian Talmud, from Tractate Shabbat 31a, which deals with a sage who lived at approximately, two sages who lived at approximately the time of Jesus, Hillel and Shammai, it is unclear how historical these stories are, because one of the problems that you have with using rabbinic texts as, quote, background for the New Testament 
is even if the figures are contemporaneous where they're earlier than Jesus, they're often found in literature, which is many centuries later than the New Testament and in Jesus. But in this well-known story, a certain Gentile comes before Shammai, who's always in the pair of the strict one, and says to him, uh, make me a proselyte, allow me to convert, on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Thereupon, he, Shammai, chased him, the proselyte, away with the builder's cubit that was in his hand. I would just point out that Shammai was a scholar and not a builder. It is quite unclear why he had this cubit in his hand, unless he was used to using it to hitting his students or chasing away people who asked foolish questions. So the same proselyte comes before Hillel, asked him the same thing, and Hillel implied, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. So the parallel between that and between the golden rule as stated by Jesus is very clear. Who said it first? Which tradition borrowed from the other is not entirely clear, but this should be a, should make very clear how earliest Christianity is very much embedded within Judaism. And now we're going to quickly look. AJ, let's do the next thing very quickly, maybe skipping Mark and going to Matt, just the text in Matthew. We'll do this. Um, another way of epitomizing the tr- uh, what, what the tradition is, is the combination of love of God and love of neighbor. In the Gospel of Mark, it's a scribe who asked Jesus, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, and Jesus says, love of God, Deuteronomy 6.5, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, uh, Leviticus 19.18b. On um, these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So have we, we have different ways of understanding what's the law and the prophets. Is it the golden rule or is it love of God and love of neighbor? These are not obviously mutually exclusive. But Matthew changed Mark because Mark has a scribe ask. And when Jesus says love of God and love of neighbor, the scribe goes, fabulous answer. Yeah, more important than sacrifices. And Jesus likes this guy and says, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. Terrific. Matthew changes the scribe to into a Pharisee. The question is not act, uh, asked out of respect for Jesus' answer, which is the case in Mark. Here it's to test him, as in lead us not into temptation or do not bring us to the test. And there's no affirmation by the Pharisee of Jesus after or of Jesus by of Jesus for the Pharisee after. So what Matthew has done is taken a passage from the Gospel of Mark and made it anti-Pharisaic, very anti-Pharisaic. And this notion that the most important commandments of the Bible, perhaps epitomizing it, are commandments of love, do not only typify this Christian text. Take a look at this text from the most famous of the rabbis of the Mishnah of the second century of the common era, Rabbi Akiva, who taught, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the most important or great rule in the Torah. So the Jewish text and the New Testament text are epitomizing similarly. And I would point out that in pre-New Testament literature, in works which in a work which is called the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, love of God and love of the neighbor are both seen together in exactly the same way that they are in that particular citation. 
from the New Testament. So that already in this period, these two ideas were seen as a good epitome of what is going on in terms of Jewish law. So AJ, why don't you tie it together? Well, Matthew is a Jewish gospel. Matthew knows biblical material, but also some post-biblical Jewish material as well. Matthew, however, was the most popular gospel among second century Gentile Christians, and they didn't think it was particularly Jewish. Um, I'm not sure how, how much you want to emphasize the ish. Um, they found it completely congenial with what they believed. Matthew clearly shows respect for the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. On the other hand, flip the slide. You have, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew chapter 3. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 27 where we get this blood guilt when Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, um, who knows Jesus is innocent, um, and he's, Pilate's doing his best to get the crowd to, to say, let's free Jesus. Um, and finally, the crowd kept saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, but he hasn't done anything wrong. And the crowd responds, his blood be on us and on our children. And the text actually says all the people, the Greek is pasolaos. If the text had been written in Hebrew, it would have said kol ha'am. The very last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, right before Jesus, having been raised from the dead, appears to his disciples. Uh, priests and elders, so the political infrastructure, devised a plan to explain how come the body is missing. So they bribe the soldiers and they say to the soldiers, listen, explain if anybody asked. The disciples came by night, they stole the corpse. And if the governor, Pilate, hears about this, we'll keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers take the money and they did as they were directed. And this totally nutty story, Matthew says, is still being told among the Jews. The Greek term here for Jews is eudaioi. Matthew uses this strategically here. Elsewhere, it's not used to describe all the people. We have Pharisees and Sadducees and people, but here, Jews. As if the Jews believe this completely ridiculous story that the, the guards at the tomb would actually say to their commanding officer, oh, we fell asleep. And although we were asleep, we actually know that they stole the body. Anybody who believes this has to be nuts. And here's Matthew's way of saying, you know, those Jews over there, not us, those Udaioi, they're the ones who don't believe the truth of the resurrection. They believe this nutty story instead. If you want more information, um, I, I, I spend my spare time writing Bible studies for Christian churches. Um, so here are just a few of them, um, because I do think that the New Testament can be taught in a way that is not anti-Jewish. And when anti-Jewish material shows up in the text, there are ways of understanding it in terms of literature, in terms of history, and in terms of theology to help diffuse some of the more negative passages in the New Testament, which have led to very problematic relationships between Jews and Christians. So we're qualified, Mark and I, to give to answer questions, or most of them, or make clarifications or address your concerns. And I think we have about eight minutes to do so. Yes, thank you so much. We would love to take a couple of questions. Um, I would just like to note that our time is limited and we are quite a uh, large crowd today. So if you can um, please be brief with your questions, we would really appreciate that. And then we can try to answer as many as possible. Um, please feel free to raise your hands and then unmute if you would like to ask a question. 
I also see um, there was one in the chat. We could start with that. Uh, why it was direct to me, so I'll read it out loud. And there were a couple. Can we see Matthew, John, and perhaps much of Paul as Midrash? You can see passages in the New Testament as Midrash, but to look at the entire gospel as Midrash, I think is stretching the term Midrash a little bit too far. The gospels are by genre, not Midrashim. They look like what we would call bioi or biographies of the time. Um, in which case they're more comparable to Philo's life of Moses, for example, or even Josephus's um, life as autobiography, than they are to Midrash. But passages are certainly Midrashic. So biographies which contain Midrashic elements in them is the way I would bring that answer to a close. Yeah, I'm happy with that. Great, thank you. Another was, so why why the Matthew vitriol directed against his fellow Jews, in brackets, Judy? Yeah, well, that's the question. <laughs> the best we can do is hypothesize because we don't have Matthew here to ask, uh, but there are a number of uh, sociological reasons that commend themselves. How do you explain, from Matthew's perspective, why the Jews, who should have recognized the messianic aspects of Jesus, didn't sign on to the program? Right? There had to be some, something must have gone wrong. And the New Testament comes up with a variety of different explanations for this. According to Paul in his epistle to the Romans chapter 11, this was part of the divine plan. The Jewish no to Jesus arranged for the mission to go to the Gentiles and eventually all Israel, by which Paul means all Jews will be saved. So it's a matter of you know a, a, a temporary hardening. For Matthew, for the most part, Matthew suggests that the Jews were misled by their leaders, by the Pharisees, by the elders, by the chief priests. Um, they were led by bad shepherds, in effect. But Matthew also has to explain to the increasing number of Gentiles coming into the church. And by the time Matthew was writing, probably in the 80s or 90s of the first century, the majority of the followers of Jesus are already Gentile. What do you do with those Jews out there who represent the alternative way of understanding Isaiah, who, want, who represent the alternative way of understanding Deuteronomy. You have to explain that not only are they wrong, but their leaders, the Pharisees, are vicious and evil. And by the time you get to the Gospel of John, they were never fated to understand its predestinarian. God chooses the, those whom God chooses and the rest, too bad. So it looks more like a sociological problem. How do you talk about those people in the synagogue down the street who are reading the same text that you're reading and coming up with very different explanations, including explanations like your guy can't be the Messiah because there's no messianic age. There's no general resurrection of the dead. There's no peace on earth. There's no final judgment. If you make them look bad, it's an easier way of making your own group look good. And the idea of categorizing someone else negatively in order to make yourself look good, Christians didn't invent that either. That's cross-cultural. Yeah, I would really emphasize the words down the streets. You criticize the people who are closest to you because they're the ones from whom you want to clearly distinguish yourself in terms of your identity. And if this is not clear, now just look around at the current presidential discussions and who is criticizing whom. Uh, so that should be clear. I think one last question, I'm just seeing it here in the chat, so I'll take the prerogative of doing that, is in Matthew's fulfillment quotations, how much of the origins text surrounding the text plot is Matthew invoking, or is he engaging in simple proof texting? Okay, that's a right. great and the answer question. to that depends upon the fulfillment citation you're using. Right. Because some of them are completely <laughs> out of context and others are not. 
Right, so AJ showed a great example where a broader context is probably being evoked. In many cases, the broader context is not being evoked, but I would be careful, uh, although I don't mean to imply that the questioner was doing this, about using the word proof texting always in a negative sense, where certainly what is happening in the New Testament is very similar with respect to what the questioner is asking to what happens in rabbinic literature. Sometimes the verse is being taken just by itself, totally out of context. And sometimes the rabbinic citation is very aware of the broader context and you will not understand the way in which the Midrash is, midrash is working unless you understand the broader context. So here, the, the 30 seconds we've got just to the, this last question, um, were the books of the New Testament edited? Absolutely. So we don't have Jesus unadulterated. We have Matthew's take, Mark's take, Luke's takes, and John's take. Um, the gospels themselves do not agree with each other. Um, and then we don't have any original copies of anything anymore than we've got the original Leviticus or the, the original Isaiah. So what we have in the New Testament, as we have with the Masoretic text, the official Hebrew text, is we have what scribes have considered to be, or scholars have considered to be, the best copy available. Yeah, and I would just add to that, to bring it together, it's really, uh, for many scholars, the most cardinal sin a person commit, can commit is the sin of anachronism. And it's unclear if that is punishable by life in prison or by execution. And it's really important when we talk about ancient books not to be anachronistic because we live in an area of copyright. We live in an era, in an, I'm sorry, in an era of copyright. We live in an era where plagiarism is a terrible sin from which you could be expelled from your university. The norms in, in antiquity, whether as AJ just said in ancient Israel, or in the early centuries of the common era and beyond were very different, where scribes were not seen as having the responsibility of exactly copying what they had in front of them, but they were very much part of the creative process. And you're not going to understand the New Testament well or the Hebrew Bible well, unless you take that into consideration. Great. Thank you so much. I'm sorry that we don't have time to answer more questions, uh, but thank you so much, Amy, Jill, and Mark, for this really fascinating presentation. And thank you, everyone, for learning with us today. Um, I wrote in the chat a few more opportunities where you can join us for learning. Our next class will be on August 17th. Uh, Dr. James Baskind will be talking about the Jews and Japan at one o'clock Pacific, so we hope you can tune into that, or to Rabbi Shmuley's weekly class about 40 great philosophers and what they can and what they mean for Judaism. Uh, that's on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific. So we hope to see you um, at some of our upcoming classes. And thank you again for being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.